Hello everyone, I'm Mark, and for this podcast I'm going to analyze a passage out of the ancient poet Virgil. Uh, now I know what you're thinking, ancient texts. Why is it important to analyze ancient texts in today's age? Well, you'll realize that themes such as war and the nature of man, which are relevant in today's society, are also core themes here, almost as if nature hasn't changed over the last 2,000 years. But before that, let's get into the verses. Virgil's Georgics 1 Lines 493 through 511. Scilicet et tempus when yet cum finibus illis. Agricolincoro teramolitus aratro. Excess in when yet scabra robigine pila. Out coravibus rastris galeas polsabitinianis. Grandia quefosis mirabitor osas epocris. Di patri indigetes et romule vestaque mater. Quae tuscum tiberet romana palatia servas. Hunc salt. Te were so UNM sucurere cyclo. Ne prohibe te satisiam pridem sanguine nostro. La omedonte ya luimus peruria troiae. Iam pridem nobis caelite regia caesar. Invidet at cominum queritor curare triumphus. Quip ubi fas versat quene fas tot bella perorbem. Tam multae scelerum facies nos ullus aratro. Dignus honos qualent abductis arua calonis. Et kerwai ruigidum falces conflantorinensem. Hinc moet u frates elinc Germania bellum. Wicinae ruptis inter se legibus orbes. Arma ferunt sae wit totomars impius orbe. Or, in a language that we can all understand, it is certain a time will come when in the boundaries, the farmer, laboring on the earth with a curved plow, will find spears having been consumed by metallic rust, or will strike empty helmets with heavy hose, and will marvel at the huge bones after they have been dug up. Ancestral gods, heroes of the land, Romulus and Mother Vesta, who guards the Tuscan Tiber and Roman Palatine Hills, do not stop this youth from saving the generation turned upside down. We have loosened enough the false oaths of Lymedon at Troy with our blood a long time ago. For long now has heaven begrudged your presence, Caesar, complaining that you care for triumphs among mortals, inasmuch as right and wrong are inverted among them. So many wars across the earth, so many forms of evil, the plow has not its due honor. The lands are rough because they were robbed of farmers and the curving pruning hooks are melted down into rigid-edged swords. From here the Euphrates stirs, from there Germany moves to war. Neighboring cities take up arms, with laws having been broken among them. The impious Mars rages throughout the world.
So I chose this passage to analyze and have an in-depth discussion because it does a good job in underlining one of the core themes and one of the biggest messages of Virgil's Georgics. Virgil is able to construct his message through many different aspects of his writing. Um, we'll go all through all of these aspects in order to get to Virgil's point. I've broken up how we're going to analyze this passage with a series of questions. 1. What is the context of this passage? What is going on in the world around Virgil as he writes this? 2. Why didactic poem? If Virgil wanted to comment on this historical situation and the nature of mankind, why do it through a didactic poem that teaches someone how to farm? 3. What does the imagery and the cultural things indicate in this passage? And 4. Does Virgil's choice of syntax and words and his organization of meter have any significance? And what do these choices reveal? So let's start by analyzing the first question. Before we even look at the Latin and other elements of this passage, let's begin with looking at the context of this work. Like any work of literature, authors' works and ideas are affected by the world around them. It is said that Virgil may have finished the Georgics around 29 BCE. Before that, in 44 BCE, Julius Caesar was assassinated, and there was a power struggle between Mark Antony, one of Caesar's generals, and Octavius, Caesar's adopted nephew, who will later be known as Augustus. This struggle lasts from 44 to 31 BCE, ending around the time of Octavius' major victory at the Battle of Actium. Virgil's first work, the Eclogues, was written around 40 BCE. So both of these works were written within the frame of the Roman Civil War, and really this is one of the most important things here to keep in mind. Uh, picking out a piece of literature and putting them into context might have a major change in one's perspective on the work. I don't know about you guys, but I'm a bit of a history buff, and a perfect example of this are the writings of John Locke and Thomas Hobbes. Um, these were British writers during the 17th century, and, they're, and what they're set, trying to say are very different from each other, and we'll go into why. Thomas Hobbes was more of a pessimist, and wrote that man is a wolf to his fellow man. So he's saying that man's true state of nature is war. Not too far into the future, John Locke wrote about how man is not only interested in self-survival, but also the survival of society. Sounds way more cheery than Hobbes. So what made their ideas come to life? Well, Thomas Hobbes wrote during the English Civil War, which was seen as a long, bloody conflict with no long-lasting outcome. And John Locke, uh, a decade or two later, wrote during the Glorious Revolution. Now, this war was seen as necessary to overthrow a tyrant. We're able to understand why they're writing just the way they are, merely by understanding the context of their writing. So, without even analyzing the semantics of these Latin lines further, this historical background gives us insight as to why Virgil wrote them. So, keeping this in mind, let's move on to the second question. The whole point of a didactic poem is, while it commonly revolves around being an instructional narrative, in this case, a manual on how to farm, it also reveals a message much deeper than that. Agriculture was an important cultural part to Roman life. I think when most people think of Roman culture, however, they might think of the city itself, the Colosseum, the Forum, the Pantheon, and a bunch of other tourist attractions you can go to nowadays. But if Virgil had focused his attention to the effects of the Civil War on the city of Rome, I don't think it would have had the same effect. Virgil's settings in both Georgics and his eclogues are both agricultural places. And that's that for a reason. In this setting, he's able to fill his poetry with pastoral imagery. 
This genre of pastoral is very fantasy-like, and it revolves around beautiful scenery and the pleasant life of a farmer. It's almost like a perfect world. But Virgil puts a twist by clouding this pastoral genre within a didactic poem by inserting the reality of war, in this case the Roman Civil War. Um, mixing this reality of war into what's thought of as a nice pastoral is Virgil's way of slapping us in the face and trying to tell us something. So in answering these first two questions, we didn't even look at the actual Latin passage and really just looked at why Virgil wrote this poem, uh, the Georgics, and why did he use a didactic format. We're now going to turn to the actual Latin to see what this shows. What does the imagery and other cultural things indicate in this passage is the third question. So there's a lot of cultural things going on here outside of farming in this passage. It's also important to understand these cultural references that Virgil is using in order to see what Virgil wants to tell us and what his stance is. For example, we must look through the characteristics of these deities and where they come into play throughout ancient Roman works. Virgil brings up these deities in his famous prayer. So Virgil's prayer. This is another reason why I chose this passage, because this prayer is very popular among scholars who study the works of Virgil. Uh, in my research, it was heavily cited and analyzed because it reveals so much about Virgil as a citizen of Rome and what's important to him. In all of Virgil's works, it seems that this is the only place where he directly addresses Romulus using the vocative case. This suggests that this prayer is a very big deal and that Caesar wants to see Octavian succeed. It is pointed out that Virgil prays to these deities so that they may ne prohibite, so do not stop this UNM, this youth, from being a savior to Rome. This might suggest that at one point the gods may have stopped someone from being that savior. Um, it's speculated that this was Julius Caesar. This indicates Virgil's political opinion as well. It may not be a popular opinion, given that Caesar was stabbed to death by members of the Senate, but within this prayer, we're able to see that. Um, we'll go more into this prayer in the other question, but for now I want to uh, talk about the other uh, imagery that Virgil has within this passage that I think are important to go over. So in lines 507 and 508, he says, Squalent abductis arua colonis et corruae rigidum falces conflan torinensem. The lands are rough because they were robbed of farmers, and the curving pruning hooks are melted down into rigid edged swords. So this is, I think this is a perfect example of the reality of war merging into the pastoral imagery, into the perfect life of a farmer. Swords are being made out of the the tools of a farmer, and I think that's a good thing to know in Virgil's imagery. I think it's also worthwhile to point out in line 509 onward, after the prayer, the line is too vague for it to be clear enough exactly what event Virgil is talking about. Some suggested that it may be when Ventidius, one of Antony's generals, leads a campaign against the Parthians. Others suggest that Virgil is referring to the period in which the conflict between Antony and Octavius became certain and ultimately the Battle of Actium, for which Octavius triumphs over Antony. This just shows the speculation that comes with reading such an old text. Um, all of what we're reading, we're not entirely sure. We can't go to Virgil and ask him exactly. And I think that's the beauty of reading uh, works like this. You can't ask the author directly, but 
you have to look through the culture, the context, and what he's saying through his grammar. So let's go on to the final question. Does Virgil's choices of syntax and words and his organization of meter have any significance, and what do these choices reveal? So as for tense, it is good to note that this ideal world and this golden age, a theme which Virgil constantly comes back to, returns when we see the Agricola, farming after the war. Within the first few lines of this passage, Virgil only uses the future tense. The Agricola, the farmer, will see this and this and that in his field. Through my first reading, I imagined the tone to be mournful and sad. What kind of farmer wants to go out to his field and one day find lots of bones and spears and armor from a time of war? But I found that other sources take this as, a, as Virgil being optimistic. An indicative verb indicates that these things will happen. And scholars found this optimistic because at some point in the future, farmers will be able to tend to their lands and the war will end at some point. But until that time comes, Rome is in a state of chaos, as seen in several parts of the Eclogues and the first part of the Georgics, and even after these first couple lines at Virgil's transition into the present. So now I want to point out to you the Grandia Osa. Another view of the same few lines derives from the idea of the bones being huge during the war. Richard Thomas states in his commentary that Virgil chose Grandia to show the constant decline of man, both physically and morally. These huge bones also indicate that the time of civil war is also seen as a heroic age. Someone else points out, however, that these heroes of huge bones are all in the ground while the farmer continues his timeless task. This again shows the speculation through conflicting ideas. Perhaps Virgil intended for both this passage to be optimistic or pessimistic, or Virgil may have intentionally placed both. You can see through the different sources that scholars still debate what Virgil really meant. I like to think that Virgil did this intentionally, similarly to how he combines pastoral imagery with reality of war. Finally, let's talk about meter and alighting. Often poetry of this kind was recited in what is called dactylic hexameter, a rhythmic way of reciting poetry with certain rules that dictate the metronome of each line. So for example, in 498, mater. I find this line extremely interesting because it is the beginning of Virgil's prayer, when he addresses gods, heroes, and Romulus and Mother Vesta. Romulus is connected using et, and Vesta is connected using que. This solution at the beginning may connect indigetes as well, heroes. To me, this works as another and. Using these three different ways uh, might be used here to emphasize and pause after each individual person or group of people that Virgil is addressing during his prayer, so that we might reflect on who it is he's calling upon and why. Also, in the second foot of line 501, Virgil connects the ending of one sentence and beginning of another together. This may indicate that his prayer is not yet over, and Virgil isn't taking a breath between these two ideas. He wants to get it all out. This reminds me of the way we talk when we have something on our minds and we just want to get it out. We talk fast. Um, through our everyday speaking, we, we stress things through our, through our language. We go up and down in pitch, and that shows, uh, that gives a semantic meaning to what we're saying. So from all this information of history, culture, and grammar, I hope you see the big picture about where I'm going with this. Number one. Literature has to be put into context as you question why it was the author wrote a certain piece. 
Number two, the way we use language and culture today is probably similar to how Virgil used it 2,000 years ago. It gives more emotion to read it as he intended it to be read. It's one thing to read a speech after the fact of it happening. Take any modern speech, for example, and read it out loud. After, listen to it aloud uh, from the original speaker and see if you pick up on emotion that you did not pick up from reading it yourself. This is what Virgil does through his meter and is able to manipulate it to create a certain feeling. And number three, I hope you're all aware of just how much we don't know for sure about what Virgil meant. It's so open-ended and is still largely debated among scholars about what some of these lines mean, and perhaps we'll never know. All we can do is keep making these connections and dive more into the culture of when Virgil was around. Thank you, and I hope you learned something about Virgil.